Hello and welcome to another edition of ITC Entertain the World. And by that theme music, I'm hoping that most of you will recognise that we are talking about Man of the World this week. As always, I'm joined by my co-hosts Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge. How are you doing, guys? Very well, thank you. Yeah, all good here. Thanks, Jess. Great. OK, so Man of the World. For those of you who aren't familiar with this series, this is a series that stars Craig Stevens as globe-trotting photojournalist Mike Strait. And he's occasionally joined by Tracy Reed, who plays Maggie McFarland. The series was intended to run for 26 episodes, but because of an industrial dispute, which we'll go into in a, into further detail, it ended up being 20 episodes. I'd say it's probably one of the most forgotten ITC action-adventure TV series. It's one of those that eventually saw the light of day on DVD via network, but it was a long time coming and it seems to have been forgotten about by anyone who's written books on 60s TV, especially ITC books. It's a bit of a shame, really, because actually, if you give this series a chance, I think you'll like it. So we should probably go into a bit of a brief sort of setup of how this series came around. Now, in 1960, ITC made a black and white pilot for a series called Sirocco, which is an a half hour adventure series, again featuring a globe trotting photojournalist. And that was intended for CBS in America. And it was made at MGM in uh, Elstree Boreham Wood and on location in Monte Carlo in July 1960. This was eventually renamed Mr. Riviera. After this, ITC started to try and develop this format. And they began working on a reworking of Sirocco with Mr. Riviere, and they were looking at shooting a pilot in colour. And originally, they had approached Gene Barry to be the star of this show. Now, Gene Barry, we all know, later went on and starred in The Adventurer, and he was probably 20 years too old to be a, a leading man then. So he'd have probably been 10 years too old at this time. We've got some documentary evidence that in 1961 he was approached for this and turned it down. And this is where Lou Grade did a masterstroke and cast Craig Stevens. Now, Rodney, I know you've got some very personal information here relating to your father because he was there, wasn't he? Well, in fact, they both went over to Los Angeles, both my father and Lou Grade. My father was going over to work for a company called Ziv on a show called Sea Hunt, which was an action adventure starring Lloyd Bridges. And at exactly the same time, Lou Grade was over in Los Angeles networking in every sense of the word. And they both tuned in on a Monday night onto NBC at 9 p.m. and were both amazed by Peter Gunn, this new show, which was new in every way. You've got to imagine 1958 in the States, the TV was basically saturated with Westerns. There was very little else in the way of drama. And here was a first ever made for TV detective. It used modern jazz and music. You've seen some of the episodes, jazz, you know, modern jazz isn't just a sort of add on in it. This is a detective who's working in a world with modern smoky jazz bars and and it was just a very, very different show from anything they'd seen before. And I know that Lou Grade came back not only having fallen in love with sort of 
Craig Stevens's role in it, but also with the music and the whole feel. And it's important he did that because this is a show which is never shown in Britain. I think this is probably one of the reasons why uh, Man of the World has sort of gone on the back seat of it. Whereas in America, Craig Stevens on the back of this show was a household name. In Britain, his name meant nothing at all. Yeah, Peter Gunn. I mean, when we think of Peter Gunn, I first encountered Peter Gunn, not as a TV series, but like you say, as a theme song, as a piece of music. And that was from the Blues Brothers film, where the band were playing the Peter Gunn theme. And you think, what's that great tune? And then, you know, eventually you find out what it is. And then, like you say, you trace it back and it's actually this really interesting early detective series. And like you say, it's very smoky, very noir. And the jazz music is a key to that show. And I think Peter Gunn, having never seen it until the sort of research for this, I'm absolutely blown away by how good it is. And we'd never seen it here, like you say, and I think you feel the same, don't you, Smudge? Yeah, indeed. You could see Danger Man. I mean, it, it is a, a good stroke of fate that it wasn't shown here because coming on the back of it so soon, it would have, Man of the World might have seemed slightly similar. But yeah, Peter Gunn is, is basically a sort of noir detective for television. And the handful of episodes I've seen so far have really impressed me. I think looking at the episodes that I've seen, I think I've watched about half a dozen now, you can see that clearly, like Lou Grader told the people who were making Danger Man, look at this. There's a definite influence there, I think. <laughs> We can move on and start talking about Man of the World in itself. The format was renamed and then they started to make this series. They'd cast Craig Stevens. They got him over from America. The first, I would say, main US actor to come over to star in a British series. You know, we've talked in previous podcasts about Lou getting a real coup, for example, to get Tony Curtis, who was a big Hollywood movie star. And before that, he had the kind of likes of Joel Fabiani and Richard Bradford, who, no disrespect to them, although they were good in their shows, they were kind of unheard of before they came here. But Craig Stevens was a big name in America. Like Peter Gunn had become a household favourite, hadn't it? It had done. And you can see the elements are taken out and put into Man of the World. There's the fabulous cars in Peter Gunn. He drives these Plymouth Sports Fury with a car phone. And he's got an array of beautiful cars in Man of the World. He's impeccably tailored in both shows. And you've got that almost television Cary Grant feel because Peter Gunn was tailored around the figure of Cary Grant. That's what Blake Edwards had in mind. Not mm -hmm. casting Cary Grant, but that sort of feel. And if you shut your eyes, they almost sound quite similar in the pre-production information you've provided us with Jasmine and then the trade papers. This is ITC's first attempt at a big hitter. They've had a, a bit of network success with Robin Hood. This was a deliberate push to bring in a new large-scale, big budget for them film series and the bold move that they were banking it up into colour. Obviously, colour TV in the UK was some years away but they were ready to take on the US networks and the prospect would be if, if they succeeded, they would just bank these films back up for when the colour market started here as well. 
that's a good point that you make there because actually what we should say and this is important is that man of the world predates the production of the saint by quite some time the saint went into production in may 62 man of the world is going into production in january 62 so it's four months in terms of a schedule ahead and as you rightly say there smudge the big idea here was to crack america as you say lude had some success with robin hood in particular so lou really wanted to crack that american network sale and the only way he knew that he could do this was to make this series really in color because the american networks had already started going to color and we know that lou had already agreed to do color episodes with sir lancelot so he was aware that to get his new series man of the world onto one of the three major networks he had to make it in color and this is where this show gets really really interesting i think because we have the first full color one hour ITC action adventure episode filmed in colour here. This predates a whole series of The Baron. And I'm not talking about things like Sir Lancelot, which was half hour, or Jerry Anson and Sylvia Anson's Stingray. I'm talking about the first ITC action adventure hour long colour episode here. And when you see the colour of this episode, I think the colour palette looks absolutely beautiful. I mean, it doesn't look that sort of staid flat colour that we talked about in the Baron. It's that mm. Spanish sunlight, isn't it? It's that almost persuaders, South of yes. France martini colour, isn't it? Yeah, you can see the investment on screen. You, you can see they were going for the bigger game here. As you just commented about the Baron, one of the first things I said to myself was, as I watched the first episode, the colour episode, I was, if only we'd had this for the Baron. And on the, on the other side of the coin, if only they'd taken this trouble with locations for Danger Man. You can't sort of overstress how big a push this really was when you think about what we'd had before. Would the series, though, have looked as good in colour as in black and white? As you both know, I love my sort of film noir feel. I do sense that a lot of these episodes would not have looked as good in colour. There are two back-to-back jungle episodes, and I bet they would have looked very artificial in colour. I mean, Smudge has said before on the pods that often black and white is kind in terms of artifice. And I do cling to the idea that I think overall the show looks better in black and white. I would agree there because I think you're right with the jungle episodes in particular. They would have ended up looking like the champions jungle yeah. sets. And the two that are in Berlin in particular, which are very like the spy who came in from the cold feel, they do need to be in black and white. But we get a glimpse of what the, I would say the more sort of episodes that feel a bit more like the saint, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean, how they could have looked in colour. Some of these episodes feel like saint stories and some of them feel like danger man stories. And I think the danger man ones work in black and white mm-hmm. and the saint ones could have worked in colour. We start out with the Mr. Riviera feel and we're globe trotting and we've got the yacht. But within six or seven episodes, that tends to disappear. And we've got a lot of set bound episodes. Some of those set bound episodes would have looked glorious in colour. As you say, we, we would have been wandering through rubber jungle plants for the two mm-hmm. jungle episodes and the one set in the desert would have struggled in colour. We see that when we look at a show like The Champions, you, that, you know, they've got episodes that are set in deserts and set in jungles and the sets just aren't, they're just not that convincing. 
So a fascinating start to this series that it was filmed on location in Spain, all in colour, and then we get a disaster. We get a strike. Now, we've done a lot of production sort of research here, the three of us, trying to find out as much as we can about this show. And we've actually, via the Television Mail magazine, we found out about when the actual strike was. So on the 5th of January, 1962, Equity, it says, have gained the backing of the other trade unions connected with the television industry. This began when British Lion Films dismissed 64 technical, electrical and construction men at Shepparton Studios. And that's when they were working on Man of the World. So we've managed to actually find when the strike starts. The strike didn't only affect Man of the World, it affected another series that probably we're all quite familiar with, The Avengers, lots of other ITV independent productions. Is this a blessing or is it, do you think it hampers the show that we go from one colour episode then to black and white because of the strike? At the time, no one in Britain would have known watching it because it's all black and white anyway. It doesn't get shown on American TV for quite some time anyway. Rewinding a little bit back, I've still got in my head the idea that what serendipity is that Gene Barry didn't get the part. I think after that, anything was a bonus. I think it's a double-edged sword. I mean, when you look at what they were trying to do, it really confounded things for them. And I mean, this was a problem with other unions, technicians' unions supporting the equity strike. This is the explanation as well for the uneven production blocks because it's essentially because of the problems incurred with the strike. Scheduling caught up with production, so they literally ran out of episodes to screen, which broke it down and meant that the last seven got a bum rap and then ended up in a totally different slot, whereas the original intention, obviously with such a show and such a gamble, they put it in the primetime autumn season startup. It was literally going head-to-head with The Saints. I think it started about a week before the first series of The Saints. Again, as we've read in the trade papers, by episode 13, it was starting to pick up a reasonable rating. Then suddenly we get this production problem. We can't give you any more because we haven't got any more to give. Saint comes back for its second season in another sort of autumn peak time slot. Poor old man of the world. The last seven episodes get shunted into a summer slot as an afterthought. Yeah, we should say as well that before the strike occurred, they had planned to do location filming, uh, moving on from Spain to Greece. So there was going to be 26 episodes for this show. So obviously with the strike, they ended up losing six episodes and the Greece location filming was shelved. I wonder as well how the production problems affected the format. If you look, as I've said, in the first sort of half dozen, seven or eight episodes, you do get the recurrent theme of the yacht on its travels. And and you can clearly see that that was the setup from the opening episodes. But quickly the format changes. And and I wonder if, again, this is an explanation as to why Tracy V dips in and out. Because as they realised things were going down the tubes in terms of getting that peak sale to America, whether they pulled in the budgets or reined things in a bit, they certainly stopped doing so much location work. I'm guessing, though, that it was never going to be the intention of having him on the yacht for the entire run. Mm -hmm. Because you've got episodes like Highland Story in the first block. Now, there's no way he's taking his yacht up there. It would have been caught in the ice even in summer before it got anywhere near (laughs) the Highlands. So presumably there was always going to be an intention that there would be the Martini episodes and UK-based ones. So you think it would come out like the Persuaders and we would have our 
yeah our sunshine shows and our sort of home counties homegrown shows exactly yeah. But you're right there, Smudge, about questioning how the format goes, because like you say, those first sort of few, the yacht is, you know, it's not central to the plot, but it's there and it's used. And after, I don't know, episode six or whatever, the yacht's never seen again. It's not even kind of mentioned. This is, I think, another thing where, you know, the oddity of this show is fascinating because the whole thing with Tracy Reed. She's in seven episodes of the first production block of 13. The next block, she's gone. There's no explanation of what's happened to her. She goes quite quickly, actually, because when you look at the production order, talking in terms of production number, she's in episodes one to five. Then you've got a gap when she's in episode eight, and then you've got another small gap when she's in episode 10, and that's it. She disappears. Yeah, it's a shame because Mm. actually she's great, but she's so modern. She's so mod in this when you look at her, she's really finger on the pulse of like ladies fashion and real up to the minute, which is a real plus point for this show, I think. And she looks great, you know, in that colour one, the, her eyes are so blue when the camera fixes on her when she's saying something. And you look at her eyes and they're just like, wow. The good thing about her is she provides such a contrast to him. She provides a combination. She's clearly his sounding board in the few episodes that she's in. But then she's a contrast to him, because as you know, I said when I first started sort of thinking about this programme, it's straight by name and straight by nature for him. On the other side of the equation, you've got Tracy with the emerging modernness. Between the two blocks being screened, we had the Beatles' first album. So she's coming out into the mod. He's coming from traditional, fairly staid USA. And that's a good contrast. And she works for me as well as when she properly worked. Cordelia worked in The Baron, which is why it is such a surprise that she suddenly disappears. I'm going to play devil's advocate here in that I do think she's fantastic in it. But you couldn't have had her in the Jungle episodes. It would have been ridiculous. And then, you know, later on, some of the other episodes, they only work because she's not there. I mean, I I think, again, that's a way in which sort of Man of the World fits into two types. There are episodes where she's, it absolutely needs her, something like Highland Story. But there are other ones where it would have just made no sense at all to, to have her in them. There are episodes like The Sentimental Agent and The Mind Reader, where he essentially gets a substitute Maggie, doesn't he? He he gets these ladies who help him. Sentimental Agent, she's actually in it right at the start. Yeah, Yeah, but she's only there briefly, and the first shot is a purely gratuitous shot of her legs. And then you get the Shirley Eaton character, and Maggie could have done the lead job, the Shirley Eaton character job, quite easily. The very lightly comic episode, one of my favourite ones, where he plays the part of a chauffeur. You couldn't have had her going along for that because a lot of the comedy value is him flirting with this sort of iron curtain, but rather sexy lady. And, you know, you can't really have her along as a spare part. Double exposure, that's called. She could have added to that block. This is another thing we all all discuss. Is she, isn't she? Is there a more than working relationship with Mr. Strait between her and him? She could have fitted into that plot because she could have been the slight, the mildly jealous assistant. But you raise a good point there about that. Are they, aren't they? Because that's a really hard relationship to kind of fathom out because at times Mm. he's quite sort of touchy-feely with her and other times he's quite, you know, like you say, very straight. Mm. And because she's not in enough of them, you can't work out if that actually has happened. This is another point we've discussed in terms of how the character moves and develops as the series goes on. Was there a writer's Bible? And if so, how clear was it? (laughs) 
we should say that the budget for this was around £26,500, although I have found some industry papers saying it was 27000 So mm. we know roughly it's around that. Whereas the Saint, when it came into production, a few months later was 23500 So you can clearly see that they had big plans for this. It's interesting that in the same trade papers, they look at an estimated sales figure of £30,000 per segment which seems low, but then when you've got to stop and think that they will try to network that across the world. So the margin will be much better. It just struck me from a £27,000 sample budget, you're only going to make 30000 from the American networks if you can sell it. Which they didn't. But they did do some location filming. There was obviously the filming in Spain, but they moved on and did some location filming in Paris and Scotland and Wales. So unlike some of the ITC shows where there's lots of back projection, at least with this, you do get to see the real actor in the locations. I mean, I'm not only talking about the pilot episode. We're talking about Death of a Conference that's filmed in Spain. I say the story in Paris. That's an odd mix, that one, between actual Craig Stevens in Paris up the Eiffel Tower and then studio-bound blue screen and then a double walking around the street so that's quite an odd one but he went there and did it the runaways i mean there's got to be some location filming there is that south of france i think that's spain made to look like yeah. france mm-hmm. to be honest the, the interesting point about the location stuff that you found jazz in the trade paper was that once the strike bit harry fine the producer was still going out to spain and, and recording the bullfights in color that would be used in the episode towards the end of the block, the bullfighter. They were still working. Well, he was still working during the strike. Do you want to say anything there about the producer, Smudge? Harry Fine, he struck me as a sort of odd choice as a producer. He used to be a a bit part actor who was for a very, very long time a casting director at Associated British Elstree. I'm not really convinced by his credentials as a producer. Yeah, he doesn't strike me as a sort of Bob Baker, Monty Berman type, you know, who were doing the same at the same time. And then obviously later on Gideon's Way, if we're just talking black and white. He doesn't strike me as a Ralph Smart type character who was doing Danger Man. And he doesn't strike me as a sort of Hannah Weinstein who was doing all the swashbucklers. So I think he's a bit of an odd choice, as you say. One of the wonderful contrasts with Peter Gunn is that you've got this suave, sophisticated, well-dressed private detective, but actually the world he works in is a very seedy one. And um, certainly that was, again, one of the things that attracted my father, this sleazy world in which a good guy is working. And that was the inspiration for Frank Marker when it came to public eye, a decent man working in a cruel world. Other fascinating things directly to come out of the strike, because we get so much media coverage, trade press from the strike happening, is they talk about Man of the World in terms of sales. And and as they're talking about that, what you also pick up are some wonderful little oddities about other programmes they were considering at the time. And there's there's some cracking titles here, like International Hospital. I think would be Globalising Emergency Ward 10 something called collector's item which presumably would have been set in the world of antiques and you can see maybe the baron oh it could have been the baron couldn't it yeah i mean obviously the strike 
did get a lot of press in the trade papers. So this is where we've been ever so lucky to get some really good background on this show. I'd really like to examine Craig Stevens' portrayal as Mike Strait. Now, Smudge, you had a great little strap line there, straight up, straight down. And he is very moralistic, isn't he? Although there is some inconsistencies within the show with this. I think he works best when he is working as the photojournalist with kind of Tracy Reed or they bring in the sidekick for the week. What I was a little bit not so convinced by was when he started working in some episodes for the man, i.e. like the CIA and things like that. Man of the World is kind of like this guy who doesn't work for those type of people. Just think it got a little bit confused there in terms of the characterization. But I have to say, Craig Stevens plays this so well, doesn't he? I mean, he's such a great actor. And if we spin back to that thing where we talked about Gene Barry, there's no way that Gene Barry could have done this role. When you look at what is happening on screen with Craig Stevens, he's very thoughtful, isn't he? Not only just in the way that he delivers the lines, but the way he moves, the way he interacts with people. For viewers watching in black and white, I should point out that Rodney and I are both holding up crucifixes whenever the Gene Barry name is mentioned. <laughs> it would be an absolute disaster. You, you, you couldn't get a more polar opposite, really, because mm. Craig Stevens is such a thoughtful, considered player. Because a lot of these shows are talky, dialogue-driven, but mm. fortunately they get some good dialogue in there to, to make it work. But you watch Craig Stevens as the other characters are delivering that dialogue. He's looking, he's assessing, he's evaluating, he's listening. You don't get the feeling he's just responding to cues. He's perfect in the role. I think we said many, many months ago about Roger Moore with Simon Templer that he's perfect for the part. And Craig Stevens is a very different type of actor, and Michael Strait's obviously a very different type of character. But once again, I can't think of a single frame where he, he's not playing the part. I mean, I would pick up on where you said, Jazz, he's moralistic. He's moral. I don't think he's moralistic in that I don't think he makes judgment values too often. Occasionally, he does. He assumes that the Anthony Quayle character must be a fake and then realises actually the guy's genuine. But on the whole, and I think he says actually in, in The Runaways, he says, I'm not into climbing drain pipes and prying into other people's lives. He's not that type of a journalist. I've got to admit, when we first started talking about this and Rodney, you'd sort of gone off and watched quite a few episodes already and you, and you came back and, and you praised it so highly and, and you said, you know, it's getting there for me. It's, it's probably <laughs> on par or perhaps even slightly ahead of Danger Man. And I'm thinking, you know, yeah, because I've seen this series once when the DVDs came out. Going back to it now, I can see why you were so full of praise for it. It is a very consistent show. It's a multi-layered show. It's a show that can be topical. It's a show that can be serious. It's a show that can has got a sense of fun and can, and can do fun. What I love about the central character is he's that sort of stepping stone. Even though he's, he's an absolute contemporary of the thing, he's a sort of stepping stone between the happy highwayman and the more moral hour-long version of Drake. And if anything, I think he's more moral than John Drake in, in the hour-long stories. I think Very he's new. a warmer he's a warmer character than John mm. Drake. He's more humane. 
he does flirt and he even flirts in the earlier episodes as well. He doesn't have a complete character change. So I think he's got some of the warmth of the Templar. But he, mm-hmm. yes, he's also got the sort of uh, the moral outlook of John Drake, just but with a few temperature notches higher. So many of these stories involve, for want of a better phrase, a moral dilemma. He's almost Solomon-like in a lot of these there's a little three-line spiel in The Bullfighter that basically sums up Man of the World for me. It's when Luis, Joseph QB, is talking to Straight in the um, Bullfighter's dressing room. And he says, does that always give the truth? And Straight replies, yeah. the camera, it's objective. Sometimes it sees things that the eye blinds itself to. And Luis says, good, keep it for that moment then, the moment of truth. That's a great little interchange, so well played, which more or less gives us the whole raison d'etre for both Michael Strait and the stories, capturing truths. And that's you know? funny that you mentioned that because I've actually got the same thing written down in my notes. I think you're so right there that that little interchange of lines really does sum up the whole series for me. That role he's playing is, is a crucial one, isn't it? In that a photojournalist is someone who's got to be slightly detached he is sort of standing back and sort of looking. And obviously, you know, this is a series where a lot of the episodes do centre around photographs. Quite often there are people trying to take them off him or in one case, you know, trying to destroy a whole exhibition of them. As you say, Rodney, in so many of the episodes, the crux becomes the photograph, like the one where the whole difference between life, death and murder in the nature of justice, the whole explanation revolves around that photograph of the guy wearing a wristwatch. We should say about the themes in this, the themes are very contemporary. It's very modern, I think, in its feel because it's bang up to date. We've got stories that are about the Berlin Wall, which had only just gone up. We've got stories about the Vietnam War, which had only just started. We've got stories about the French having problems in some of their colonies like Algeria. This is a, a quite a brave step, really, in the script writing part that these stories are so like that. Yeah, it's got a real good topicality to it, as you say. And one of the things in terms of production values, as the series progresses, it relies even more so on stock footage to give the location feel or to set up the scenario or what have you. I would say that nine times out of 10, the stock footage works. This is one of the best black and white ITCs I've seen for stock footage that actually fits in. It works in terms of keeping the programme contemporary. Well, the frontier, the stock footage at the beginning of that works brilliantly. And mm-hmm. I think in that episode, you're perfectly happy to believe that you're sort of on the sort of almost Indian-Chinese border. Talking of storylines, I suppose we should talk about the writers, really, because we do get a nice mixed batch of writers. But we also get the thing here where we get writers writing a couple of episodes and reusing characters, which is quite an interesting thing for an ITC show where we've got characters appearing in two episodes. We don't usually get that. Let's have a look at who we've got then. We've got Lindsay Hardy, who um, wrote Masquerade in Spain. We've got Tudor Gates and Robert Thompson. Michael Pertwee, who wrote a couple. John Roddick. 
again, it's, it's the transatlantic approach. You've got a mix of American writers who had been writing for stuff like Gunsmoke and Mannix and all that sort of thing. And then you've got some guys like John Roddick and Mark Brandel who are staple ITC writers who've done loads and loads of series. You've got Ian Stewart Vincent. Black writing one. He was the script editor as well. Story editor. And you've got yeah. Highland Story. You've got Lindsay Galloway who wrote for so many ITC things, Invisible Man, William Tell, Interpol, Night Errant, All Just Men, Ghost Squad, Francis Drake. You've got people who clearly understand the ITC model, but with, to whatever extent, some of the um, US-based writers to presumably keep in the US idiom. Well, I don't think the US idiom really comes into this, to be perfectly honest. I think what you've got here, because we've got 15 writers in 20 mm -hmm. episodes, and that normally would spell disaster. And I think the continuity is provided by the character and the actor, maybe rather mm. than the script writers. Yeah. Because he's yeah, so consistent, if that makes sense, it sort of helps to bind the whole thing together. There are some little lapses that make you wonder whether there was a writer's Bible. A couple of blatant romantic dalliances seem to sort of, well, at least one of them seems to just get shoehorned in. Well, I mean, the opening episode, the colour episode, Masquerade in Spain, he's sort of actively almost encouraged to flirt with her and he takes her out for the evening and it is almost like a sort of quite a romantic evening they're having until mm. he gets slugged on the way back. I think he chose the wrong girl. I would have chosen Christina Grigg. The girl with the blonde hair looks like Venus from Fireball XL5, doesn't she? She certainly you know, she, she acts like it as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I never even noticed that until you mentioned it the other day. I yeah, know. God, blimey, I was looking for the strings. Was... Just like it. I do want to make the point that some of the episodes feel more like saint stories and some feel like danger man stories. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yes. And personally, I, I don't think that's a criticism, is it? No. It, it's just the way it is. Um, so something like Death of a Conference very much feels like a Danger Man episode. It's even got mm. your favourite guest actor jazz in Warren Mitchell, who, mm. who pops up, of course, in God, Saint yeah. and Danger Man on a regular basis. Yeah. And then there are others, such as the Erica Rogers episodes, that are definitely far more sane. And of course, if like me, you're almost coming to it on the back of Peter Gunn, you can see the influence of Peter Gunn in there as well. So it's a fascinating cocktail of different shows which sort of pop up through Craig Stevens at different moments. I mean, if, if I was going to offer a, a slight criticism, I'd say the Danger Man ones, the ones where he works for the man, the CIA or the Intel or whoever. I think that does slightly diminish the character because I, I think a lot of his strength comes from his independence. The show, for one, he's working for CIA, isn't he? Yeah. And um, it doesn't impinge on that episode at all, really. In that one, no, because that, that is a, a sort of, as you've already compared Craig to Cary Grant, he is a sort of televisual Cary Grant. <laughs> that episode, Double Exposure, Rodney, you were sort of complimentary about it before I was. I had to take a second look. And when I looked again, you, you see, yes, this is a sort of Cary Grant sparkling comedy. I find this series very, very consistent. So I find it hard to say, like, which would be my top five. Mm -hmm. um, there are a couple that I think that aren't as strong, but even they they're not that bad. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not so keen on the runaways and that's 
primarily because I think there's a large section of it where it's on Mike's yacht that is so dragged out. The guy that's supposed to be winning over the girl, you know, he gets seasick. He's not really much of a hero, but that whole sequence seemed to take ages to complete. And I just felt that was a, a real sag in the story. And Erica Rogers's character in that, I know she's supposed to be annoying and a bit grating, but she really is. You are an ITC landlubber, Jazz, aren't you? Yes, I am. I don't like ITC and boats. I'm with Jazz on the Runaways. That guy, Leon, who plays the so-called male hunk, for me, he's straight out of the Kinson Grain School of Acting. And that, that really puts me off the episode. I love it. And actually, I think uh, Leon Pierce's part, the Martin King, I think he's meant to be like that because mm-hmm. it's part of the thing that Erica Rogers' character, she doesn't see men for who they are. She sees these knights in shining armour. And when a bigger knight in shining armour comes along, she falls for him and then him and him, which is meant to be part of the comedy of it. And everyone is aware from very early on that he's a con man. I think Smedley calls him more pirate than gigolo. I think it's fun. It annoyed me the first time around. That's because I have a bit of a thing about Erica Rogers that she can be quite annoying. I find her quite annoying in some of the Saint episodes as well. But actually, I warmed to it the second time around. And you can't have Portrait of a Girl, which I would put in the top three, probably, episodes, mm-hmm. without having this one first, because part of the comedy is the fact, oh, my goodness, she's turned up again. I'm going to have to hide behind the sort of reception desk and everything else. And mm-hmm. she does develop in that second episode. I think um, Michael Pertwee did a brilliant job with both those, because I think they're both witty scripts. I mean, she arrives with Maggie and I think Michael Strait thinks that Maggie is sort of flirting and says sort of steady Maggie, we're here to make pictures, not triangles and this sort of thing. There's some very witty dialogue in it. The remarkable thing about The Runaways particularly is that when you go back and look at the archive, there was a huge push on The Runaways and there was a big publicity push for Erica. Well, I'm presuming that had Craig Stevens or the writer or the producers not been impressed with it, they wouldn't have had the Mac for the second one, Portrait of a Girl. So they must have felt that the episode worked. I think one of the benefits of that second one is that Donald Stewart, who I think is brilliant in Portrait of a Girl, he has a very minor part in the first one. And quite a lot of the comedy comes from the way the writer is quite happy to sort of almost gently lampoon this American who's over in Britain looking for ancestors and looking for history. And I think he's a big part of what makes Portrait of a Girl very funny. As Jazz says, choosing, I can choose two that I don't rate as highly, and that would be The Runaways and The Bandit. The Bandit has so many cod accents. It's such a ridiculous premise. I don't mind The Bandit. I think it's quite fun, but then we're all different. My other one would be The Prince. It's it's got its moment. I mean, it's, it's pretty bold in The Prince where they kill off the old lady. That's a pretty mm. strong move for the time. The problem with Man of the World is, as Jazz has said, isolating the top three, four, five, because there is such strength across the series. I would argue, I would put the point, that it's probably the most consistent ITC show we've looked at so far. Gideon's Way would have to be up there with it. I know you hadn't joined the rocket at that there, point. Yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> I would say Gideon's Way is ahead of it. Man of the World's consistent primarily because of Craig Stevens' acting ability. I mean, mm. the scripts do vary. Some go from quite light-hearted comedy to quite intense, serious Cold War drama. 
and he's good in, in all of it. It's just some of his supporting players in some episodes. If there's any episodes in particular you wanted to mention that you think are great, then please do. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd throw Highland stories straight in there. It's not the most sort of original tale, but you can't go wrong when you've got a Scottish castle. You've got one of the most unpleasant villains you'll ever come across. And he's yep. also brilliant in Gideon's way. He's great as the lady killer. And you've got, as I say, John Laurie. You can't go wrong, can you? And it's the whole atmosphere in that one of these people sort of shut in this Scottish castle, knowing that there's someone who could bump them off, probably. But it's also got some lovely humour in it. I think that's one of those episodes that mixes the two up very nicely. The, the fundamental dilemma of it is ancient versus modern, isn't it? It's, it's John yes. Laurie's old versus Noel Middleton's updating examination of honour and responsibility and what have you has to be said because we come back to this point time and time again in the itc shows how fortunate we are that we do get some strong roles for women and noelle middleton in that one and in her other one in jungle mission she's absolutely wonderful i mean in jungle mission she can easily go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anthony quayle's performance from the enemy and those two are almost identical roles, aren't they? The doctor mm -hmm. and the nun, because yeah. they're not interested in politics. All they're interested in is actually looking out for people who are perhaps less fortunate than them. And you, you get the feeling, certainly with the Anthony Quayle character, is he too good to be true? Which obviously is what Michael Strait thinks at the beginning. But yeah. no, these are two good people trying to do things in a bad world, aren't they? Can we go back to the Highland story, though? Do you think that the teaser throws you a bit? Because it's set in Australia, isn't it? And you get this thing where you're thinking, OK, this is called the Highland story, but we're in Australia. I just wondered if you felt that. I mean, obviously, it's explained later. It did seem a little bit strange. Some of the things with these episodes, they've got no teasers at all, which I found strange. Mm. We go from having episodes that have got teasers that set a story up, like Masquerade for Spain, to teasers like the Highland story, which I thought the teaser was a bit odd, to some that have got no teasers at all. I think the Highland story, yes, it is confusing. You, you come into a screen title, Highland story, and then you suddenly find yourself in Australia. But I think the teaser is a brilliant little teaser. It's one of the best Highland stories got such a lot to it. I love John Laurie's very thinly veiled threat to Ray Barrett when they're talking. The moral code of Strait comes in again because when he actually finds out about Alistair, he's confronting Alistair with the fact that he's sheltering him, putting more people in peril. And that lovely shot when they go into the library and they mm. don't see the mysterious stranger and all you get is that lovely lamplit shot of the uh, cigarette burning in the ashtray. You've got the wonderful thing of the two dinners as well. And the second dinner in particular, where Michael Strait is basically pretending to offer a hypothetical situation, but it really he's talking about the situation they're in. And mm. you can just feel the whole tension crackling. I also like the fact that John Laurie's sort of honouring all the clan's sort of traditions and systems that you've got to take these people in. But I also mm. like the scenes in the pub with straight and the landlord where you know he says to me oh you're not staying here and then he looks at him and he's like oh no you're staying at the castle and and then they go back <laughs> there are some fun touches in that as well as it being quite dark in places and and the whole sort of chase and fight thing at the end is really well done 
that sort of Grouseland Moor thing reminds me of the Danger Man Half Hour, the Sanctuary. Yes. And it is a very, very Danger Man ending. It's a really nice, neat little ending. The only thing I would say, on, on a level of realism as well, you'd think that Ray Barrett's character, Charlie West, would be trying to keep his head down. And, you know, he's going in and trying to cause like a barroom fight every single time he goes into that Scottish pub. He must be mad because he's doing exactly the opposite of what you'd expect, isn't he? Yeah, the locals don't like him, do they? No. (laughs) An episode I really like is The Mind Reader with Juliet Mills in an early role. And I thought she was so great in this. The premise as well is, is a really nice little story that actually she feels she's something. And actually it turns out that she is, but she isn't. It's a very clever little story that. Okay. It would be up there in my top three. The train spotting side of me absolutely mm. loves all the, the vanished age posters that we get up in the underground and then seeing him go out on a diesel train out to the home counties. About yeah. the only time in the show we get that. They've even got an advert for BBC Concert Orchestra on the underground platform, which yeah. was very kind of ITC mm. to allow in. But no, I mean, I I think it's brilliant. And that scene when the underground train comes in and she can't cope with the sort of ocean of noise. I think not only is that brilliantly done, but second time around, because I'm quite slow, I suddenly realise actually that's where you should realise that Mm -hmm. she hasn't got any sort of extra special talent in the sense that she thought she had. I think it's a strong episode. To me, it's Man of the World meets the Human Jungle. He cares for this person. He's, he's trying to, to help out a person he sees who's in a peculiar form of adversity. We also break out in some nice location footage in Sonning. The father is a brilliantly drawn character because, you know, he really is sort of obsessed with his chip on the shoulder. He even goes into a sort of a Yorkshire accent at one time to tell everyone where he's come from. And and he's relying on his daughter to prevent him from being ordinary by association, Mm. isn't he? This is where Man of the World is so successful for me because we call it an action-adventure series, but there's a heck of a lot of thought-provoking elements to the script. And this thing about should the father live vicariously through the daughter? Or should, mm. should he just accept his own life as it's been and, and let his daughter go away and live? And, and that, that's something that clearly comes out in this. Like you say, the father talks about coming from Leeds, doesn't he? And saying how embarrassed kind of thing he is by it and how awful a place it is. You mentioned about the location filming. And of course, they actually went and filmed at Holland Park Tube Station. And there's the Somerset House location filming where they go later on in the episode so this is another strong one for london locations which i really enjoy actually we said about boats not working trains work brilliantly and train stations Mm. i mean i'm thinking if you know we were all eulogizing about the same episode that roger moore directed himself with all that footage at waterloo Waterloo, that we loved it in the baron that sequence Mm. film there and here again, the trains work really well, don't they? I do love Shadow of the Wall. 
this mm. one is the Berlin one directed by Harry Booth, who was more famous for being the director of the Double Deckers kids TV series. And that has some of the most effective direction of the whole series for me. We open up and we've got that lovely high crane shot of Straight and Wilhelm overlooking the canal, which you know, Jazz, is a London location. And you'll tell me where it is. Yeah, Regent's yeah. Canal. And they've got that beautiful crane shot. That is a really, really ambitious shot considering the technology of the time. And it is, it's gorgeous. And then you've got the lovely little teaser sequence for Charles Lloyd Pack that is so dynamic. That is so much anti-typecasting for Charles Lloyd Pack. And again, Wilhelm goes back to his flat with Straight and they see Charles Lloyd Pack's character for the first time. That is just a pure film noir shot with him in the darkened room and the, and the only lighting you get is from the neon outside. The story itself, I think it's the Ian Stewart Black story, it's basically a retread of the Danger Man Half Hour The Key, but it does allow Harry Booth to do some nice directorial touches, so that's, that's why I like that one. Now, I would have to ask, how does Jorgens, Charles Lloyd Pack's character, cross that canal where he's being machine gunned for about five <laughs> minutes and he still gets out the other side. But that's an, that's an ITC thing again, that you could ask the same about when Steve Forrest and Cordelia escape from whatever it is, East Germany, and yeah. do exactly the same. They swim in the Austria tank and they're machine yeah. gun for ages and they still get out the other end. And actually, it is a very ITC land episode because Michael Strait accepts a lift off a bogus chauffeur. You know, another <laughs> failing. This is true however thematically and dialogue driven they are. The other thing I would come back to is that you don't seem to lose pace. There, there are many episodes where you start looking at you watch and thinking, oh, this is 20 minutes, this has dragged on a bit. The only one I felt that was the runaways in that boat section. But if we're mm. talking about nice direction, I think there's some nice direction with Death of a Conference, where mm -hmm. in particular, there's one real standout shot for me where Michael Strait has been walking through the sort of Spanish back streets and he's being watched mm -hmm. by all the sort of Spanish armed soldiers, in effect. And then he walks up these steps. And then as the picture is framed, there's a doorway sort of a third of the way across and there's a foot on the other side. And you're looking through a beautiful angle. And then he sort of enters the room through the door and you don't see who he's talking to. But that shot there is so well set up and it's it's a real suspense shot. And I love the yeah. way it's done. And then obviously it revolves around and you see who it is and it's Patrick Troughton. But that actual setup of that shot, when that, you know, look at that, I think that's very, very cinematic. And that's the first sort of time I thought, oh. I'd bring you back on that because what you just talked about there, that little montage where he's been walked through to that rendezvous. That is so nicely staged in itself, not oh, just yeah. that, clo that closing shot. And then to develop it further, I think that is an incredibly daring shot in the same sequence where he holds on just the machine gun mm. and you hear, the, you hear the voice, but all you can see in, in the sort of full three-quarter frame is that machine gun. And he holds that for well over a minute, I think, a really, really daring shot for the time. Yeah, I mean, I think directorially, that's probably one of the strongest ones for me. In the picture is an interesting episode. You don't somehow necessarily expect Brian Clemens in Men of the World somehow, but watching it twice, and I think it's a very, very good episode. There are lots of very sort of Clemens 
moments because it's quite a dark episode and it's got an extremely sort of dark ending to it and yet you've sort of got little comic moments that uh, probably only Clemens would come up with so there's the delivery man who's being attacked but he's enjoying his sandwich so much he doesn't want to stop eating it he carries on eating it throughout the sort of the attack on his van and mm. and I love the fact you've got all the photos of characters from previous episodes yeah, in his nice gallery that exhibition. Is. Now, obviously, I don't know whether that's Clemens or whether that's a director, but mm. uh, I thought it was a very well-made episode. That one is quite Danger Man for me. Mm. And it's got that clunking great plot hole of when they run him off the road and he's eating his sandwich. Why didn't they just take the negatives then? With that one, that's one of the ones as well, though, where it gets a bit ITC made up. Well, in the country, I made a note of it, it's called Bledska. It's a bit like one of these nondescript Eastern Bloc countries where we've had actually, before this, like we spoke about earlier, we've had stories actually in in contemporary places like Berlin and we've had India and China border and uh, Vietnam and that. So that was the only thing for me. Why didn't they just say Poland? or Mm -hmm. east germany that mercedes with gold wing doors i just can't get enough of that you know one of his many fabulous cars how on earth did they get three people into that when they were going to the labs with the little old man good points about the car so because what struck me with this is the one you said you didn't particularly enjoy the bandit Mm. he's driving a jag e-type in that and when the same production team went and asked for a jag e-type they were point blankly refused and then they asked for another Jag. So I don't quite get why Jaguar had a problem with the Saint when they'd already, I don't know if they necessarily loaned the car, but I can't imagine ITC going out and buying an E-Type just for one episode. They would have clearly loaned that from a garage with Jaguar's permission. That's a very familiar number plate. I think that's a particular production car from Jaguar. It's not the ideal car to go looking out for um, <laughs> a bandit, lost, lost ruins <laughs> or whatever, you know, <laughs> up in the mountains. The one that got me is, and you see it in colour, the gorgeous Austin Healy. He gets to mm. drive in Masquerade in Spain. He gets a couple of nice Mercs, the Austin Healy. He, he really does get some nice cars to drive, but as Rodney observed earlier, that's probably a carryover from Peter Gunn then. As is the haircut. I mean, if you look at any photos of Craig Stevens pre-Peter Gunn, he's got long wavy hair and he had to have this a very short Ivy League haircut for Peter Gunn. And, and we're getting him here straight after. I think he'd done a little tour with his wife, a theatre tour. But other than that, he comes straight from the one show to the other. Yeah. And so he's still got that look, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, the one thing it lacks, it, it's Peter Gunn is very experimental in terms of the direction. So there's loads of mirror mm-hmm. shots. There's lots of very daring, unusual things where you think you're seeing one thing and suddenly the camera pans back and we've all been teased. We don't have, as we've said, much of that. But other than that, no, I think we've got lots of the character has passed on. Going yeah. back to Shadow of the Wall, what I liked about that as well was that um, Paul Maxwell was a character who came back as the sort of head of the American intelligence in Berlin. That was a really nice touch. We'd obviously seen him in the episode Specialist for the Kill, which I thought was quite a fun story. And, and we should point out here, this is where Man of the World meets Star Wars, isn't it? You know, all those Star Wars fans, you know, who are probably obsessed with every single appearance of every Star Wars actor ever. I wonder how many of them know that R2-D2 himself, Kenny Baker, was in Man of the World. 
especially this lots of lovely can. touches that's easy the, the use of bombed out london really really good and of course the little sort of popping difference for this one is we get animated titles but what he's supposed to be doing i think straight gets in a bit deep in this one really i mean there are some nice touches with the crote as they call him with sort of things like the sinister underlighting to make him look even more strange but i struggled with the character but i did think the ending was very good the character is, is uh, I'm quite sure, a deliberate reference to Peter Gunn because you've got a dwarf who is a regular guest character in that called The Little Man. But I think when he comes out of a laundry basket, it's quite disturbing. That's, that's quite novel, that bit. And I, I think the sudden and dramatic ending is, is very well done. I thought it was a good story and well done. <laughs> of justice i find that absolutely fascinating thematically because it's what underpins michael Strait as a character it is justice and truth and there are some brilliant interchanges in there robert there fleming go. is good in that isn't he he's very good in the ending he acts that very well yeah and, uh, and i'll tell um, you if like me you've worked in a university those characters are realistic because they almost care more about who gets in the photo and who is, you know, it's the one who's discovered it rather than the discovery itself. But I he's mean, got that great line, hasn't he? When he gets to a point where he's told by the sort of authorities, you can't go any further. And he asks, oh, justice ends at a row of empty oil cans. I love that line. There are some cracking lines in this script, but there's a tiny little shot just at the start where they found the burial chamber. Just as Jane and Straight go to see the discovery, we cut to a shot, which is a foreground set in front of a back projection plate, and the camera moves with them as they go. That's a hell of a lot of trouble for a tiny shot, and we never see mm. that bit of set again. And this thing they're talking about, the Hammurabi Code, that's a proper historic artifact, so that means they've done their, their research, and there are some very good interchanges with Bernard Archer in this, all about the nature of justice. But Bernard Archard's, his part, it's the John Laurie part again, isn't it? Because it's all about the protection of the guest. It's almost yes. that same Highland clan theme, which yes. is why I said earlier about there are often pairs of episodes, because there's yeah. quite a bit in common between that and the Highland clan one. It is essentially one law system against another. Like you say about pairs of episodes, this one has got a narration also, like the frontier, because you don't always get that in the teaser. That's similar to Peter Gunn. Some of them have a sort of typical private detective commentary at the beginning, mm. and some don't. This one goes on a bit of a roller coaster because Straight wants to get a particular decision out of the shake. And when he gets it, he doesn't like it. So you've got one type of justice, another type of justice, and then a request for a further consideration of justice later on in the episode. Well, he messes up there, Michael Strait, doesn't he, actually? It's one of those rare moments where he yeah. makes the wrong decision. And inevitably, O'Connor actually ends up with a worse fate than he would have done if he'd stayed with the shape. Can I mention the frontier? There's a brilliant role for Leila Nadu as the Doctor. That is a really, really strong role and a really, really good theme. Despite the dubious makeups with Peter Arne as the Major, and John Hollis as his lieutenant. Despite that, there are some brilliant performances in it. 
But the actual scheme of the doctor to put herself in so much peril to save the day, really, really strong. And when you consider that lady, the actress Leland Nadu, was just formerly a Miss India contestant and become fresh into acting, she acquits herself really, really well in, in a good story. Well, she's brilliant in that. I mean, it's a strong cast because we haven't even mentioned there, uh, obviously, Alfred Burke, Burke Quook uh, mm-hmm. as well. I mean, the Alfred, uh, oh, and probably Gary Raymond, isn't it, in the... I did think that Alfred Burke's character is quite a strange one in that episode. Yeah. I mean, not, not just the makeup, the whole thing about the going off into a trance when he, yeah. you know, people are trying to talk mm-hmm. to him. He's basically following the path of least resistance, isn't he? He'll take anything as long as they leave the Lamasery in peace. And it doesn't speak a lot for religion when he's prepared to sacrifice the doctor and straight so readily. Well, Peter Arn, has, he has a line in there which sort of almost does the opposite of, of the line you were quoting earlier. He says, it's said that the camera cannot lie, but it can also distort the truth, which I thought was a nice line. I mean, I don't think we ever see Michael Strait doing that. No, he's, he's never a propagandist. This is what I say about him. He's, he's best when he's independent. Time and time again, he says it in various quotes throughout the series. You know, my way, as it is, tell the truth. Nothing more, nothing less. That's quite a Danger Man story as well, though, isn't it? You know, it felt yes, like a bit like a half-hour Danger Man story to me. Yes, yeah, so it, it could easily it. have been one. Not that I'm criticising, I'm just sort of saying, you know, as, as themes. Yeah, the, the bullfighter struck me as, as that as well, like a half-hour Danger Man padded out, and it certainly was padded out, because when you look at the flamenco sequence, that is 9% of the episode's running it's time. Really long, it's isn't it? Good, yeah, I mean, good, the, the Frontier is a much better episode, isn't it? Well, with this show, we can't not talk about episodes and not really mention the Sentimental Agent episode because this is the first example of where ITC do a spin-off. Those of you who aren't familiar with The Sentimental Agent, I should just say that this is an episode of Man in the World that then became a series within itself. But I'm pretty sure most of you who are listening will know that Sentimental Agent is a series as well as being an episode of Man in the World. And this is really, for me, a Craig Stevens goes on holiday episode. And also Tracy Reed is there at the start and she's got a few lines. But then again, she seems to go off on holiday and it's sort of handed over to Carlos Thompson, who's playing the sentimental agent, which we know from the original script was the agent from Haiti. It's a great, fun story. You can see why they probably thought, this is quite a fun idea. We could make something of this. It's a brilliantly plotted episode as well, because there are loads of what I'd call sort of Chekhov gun moments. So the first time we go to the warehouse, we see this mannequin and a diving mask, and you sort of almost know that they're going to feature somehow later in the story. And he is such a wonderful character, because first time around, and I've never seen Sentimental Agent, I assumed he was going to be a phony. But of course, he has his own moral code as well. He could have left Michael Stray in the deep end, and he doesn't. He says at one point he's only doing it for the money, but you clearly know that he isn't. And this 
for me is really the episode that takes Man of the World into proper action adventure. I mean, there are fight sequences and Craig Stevens handles them very well, but this one really takes it into the realm of ITC action adventure in its sort of light-hearted Danger Man style, particularly that sequence where he's breaking into the hotel room. That is a real classic ITC sequence. And you can see why they thought they would spin him off because he's, he's as wide as he's tall. He's a, he's a wonderful character. He's a likeable rogue. And there are so many little touches. It's very Danger Man when hiding the film in the wash basin outlet and yeah. the thing with the film in the cigarette holder. Very, very cheeky mm. when he's being searched and he leaves it on the minister's desk there just smouldering away. Well, I mean, he's only just met Shirley Eaton's character, Lee Russell, literally a few seconds before. And he's feeding her buttered toast straight into her mouth. Yeah, yeah, and Peter Jones is good at this, isn't he? As the uh, Minister of Commerce who's... With a Wall Street broker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But despite being a bit of a Lothario, he's actually delightfully camp as well, isn't he? I mean, he tells the doctor, oh, be careful, I'm ticklish, and all of these sort of things. <laughs> he, he is such a wonderfully sort of wild character. You don't quite know what's coming next. The interesting thing in terms of the problems and the logistics with this series from the trade papers, they said that ICC said that if they didn't sell Man of the World as primetime network in America, they would revert to 30 minute episodes again to save production costs. But then even before Man of the World has run out, they've already started production on Sentimental Agent as a 50 minute show. Which is interesting because they couldn't have spun it off on a viewing figure reception or audience reception. They've spun it off in-house, if you know what I mean. They've Mm. seen the potential in the character and thought, we could do something with that. This is the thing with Man of the World and, as you mentioned, ratings. It seems that by the time they got to episode 13, they may not have been on par with The Saint, but they were building up a decent rating. And then suddenly they had to stop. There's no suggestion then that Sentimental Agent, the episode was a bit like ex-King of Diamonds. It wasn't a, a trial run to see if that would work. I haven't got any evidence of that, and I can't find any evidence of that anywhere. So, no, I, I think it's just a mystery. It's very odd as a holiday episode, isn't it, though, in the sense that if you think of any other show, a holiday episode would normally involve one character perhaps stepping away, and mm. you'd maybe expect... Tracy Reed to suddenly play the main yeah. part a bit yeah. like if Cordelia had had her own episode of the Baron mm-hmm. you don't expect both of those characters to disappear and two brand new ones come in it's more than a holiday episode isn't it I mean except of course Michael Strait is in the teaser and the tag but apart from that <laughs> We haven't said much about The Enemy and Jungle Mission, which are, for me, twinned episodes, not only because clearly they must have been made back to back with the same sets, but because in many ways they are the same sort of themes. Anthony Quayle's character, and I think Anthony Quayle is brilliant as Dr. Moretti. His character is, to a large extent, the same character or a parallel character with Mother Superior at the Noel Middleton. Uh Uh, Apolitical Mm -hmm. figures... And 
I think there's a real atmosphere set in the sort of jungle in both those episodes. Mm. And I think that they're really powerful, the pair of them. The Enemy was written by Julian Bond, who was a stronger dramatic writer in terms of dialogue, which suits his programme, as opposed to when he wrote for things like The Saint. And I met Julian and I interviewed him. He was never very good at the sort of action adventure, in his opinion. He much preferred the dialogue-driven script. And this one in particular is that style. And like you say, Anthony Quayle is superb in this story. Absolutely. I mean, you said that these characters, the Mother Superior and the Doctor, are apolitical, but Moretti understands life and politics particularly because when there's a, a line talking about whoever's winning the battle, whoever's going to overtake the hospital, Moretti just says to straight, whatever happens either side, we'll be only too happy to leave us the poor, the uneducated and the sick. He, he knows perfectly well how the game is played. And this episode shows a significant lapse of judgment for once by straight, because he goes at this in a very American way and he comes at it head on. Whereas the doctor says in this trial, this thing's a mockery, this trial. And he says to straight, don't you understand? This is a farce. Laugh at it. And Straight has seriously misread the situation at this point. But I think this is where we get straight the journalist rather than the photographer, because he's heard what all the other journalists have said about this guy turning his back on fame and money and it all being too good to be true. And I think he's come in having believed all of this. The thread of the piece to me is how the men of conscience help each other, because we do get a change in the major delays in the episode and it's three men of conscience. That major has signed his own death, death warrant, warrant, hasn't he? Yeah. And as I said, I love the fact that you then got Jungle Mission, which it's almost like a mini heart of darkness. You've got these sort of um, supposedly civilised people behaving as savages, and actually it's the supposed savages who in some ways are more civilised. And I, I just love the whole subplot of the tribe leaders dying some, mm-hmm. the sort of jungle drums, which are almost like the heartbeat in the story. You know, this sort of theme of poetic justice. There's such a strong sort of morality philosophy thing running through this. They're trying to turn it into a sort of bastion under siege and... She says the gates are never shut. Noel Middleton as the Mother Superior, she easily matches Quail's inner strength and peace. All studio bound that one as well. And that, literally, that, those literally were the... one or two sets. We haven't spoken about the titles and the music. Now, the titles for Man of the World, this is the first ITC series where we get an ITC logo before we even get the name of the show. So this is like a branding here. This is ITC presents Man of the World. It's not Danger Man, the Saint, and then you don't get the ITC logo in those until the end. And I like the idea of the titles, the way they work. I think the themes and the imagery don't match, though. The opening and closing of the lens, the shutter, is great. And 
interestingly, I think the Baron titles might have, have been influenced by this because we're seeing landscapes of capital cities like London and Paris and Rome, etc. New York, you know, New York's not a capital, I know. But, you know, you get that in the Baron where it, it after that car chase thing. Yeah. But I think the theme here, it's not like an earworm. We talked in our last podcast about the importance of the theme for Hammer House of Horror, where it's such a short theme it had to be instantly recognisable, like it's 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 the calling card. And it did that in sort of 30, 45 seconds, whatever. This theme, I think, yeah, it gets in your head if you watch the whole series in a row, like we've done for the podcast, but it's not instantly recognisable. And I think it's one of Mancini's weakest pieces of work, to be honest. Controversial, I know, but I just don't think the music matches the actual imagery we see. Well, we've got a wonderful irony in that Peter Gunn is normally voted the greatest theme tune of all time, certainly in the States, that's where it normally gets mm. voted. And as you said at the very beginning of the pod jazz, it's more famous than the show itself. Yeah. And here we've almost got the opposite. I mean, I do feel that in that music, you get a sort of, if you weren't looking at the images and shut your eye, you get the idea of someone globe trotting. But it just doesn't fit with the sort of snapping shut and open mm. of the lens. The two don't go together. It's not dynamic. It's a lush thing. A theme should get you out of the kitchen if you're finishing off the washing up. It doesn't get you out of the kitchen. It, it just sort of washes over you. And I don't think the titles are particularly... I mean, yeah, the lens is a good idea, but we don't really get the man. It's yeah. part of the problem that Michael Strait even though uh, he does get into action and Craig Stevens is very good, as we said, at the action parts, but Michael Strait is not an action man. He's not a danger man. He's not a, a saint. He's someone who is standing there taking photographs and that doesn't necessarily make for interesting titles, does it? So in a sense, is the character one of the problems for making the titles? Possibly, yes, because mm. he hardly appears in them. He's there after that ITC presents and he's sort of yeah. almost hidden behind the camera. So you can't really see who it is in a way. And like you say, you don't get enough of it being Craig Stevens. I would have thought that they would have had his face front and centre and sort of screaming, really, because he's been the star of Peter Gunn and it's a big show in America. And I don't know how well it sold around the world, but I imagine it's, it did pretty well he's a name you'd have thought that they would have made more of him in that title sequence but when we talk about itc series like we do we usually talk about the titles and the music and it doesn't seem to matter which series it is one or the other or a lot of the time both are very very iconic or really great you know okay the adventurer theme for example is a great theme but the action isn't so great but it's still a great theme if you know what i mean yeah. with yeah. this it's a bit bland and a bit forgettable but That's we've got to remember we're going back to 61 62 when people mm -hmm. think of danger man as being an iconic theme they're thinking high wire they're not thinking a half hour music when you think of the same it's three or four notes which are iconic. It's not a brilliant theme tune. You wouldn't want to sit there and listen to it too many times on the trot. And I think maybe that's part of the historical context that by the mid-60s, we're getting far more interesting titles and theme tunes, whether it's within the ITC genre or out. Mm. I just think perhaps go back to 60, 61, 62, and they're not the most dynamic. 
I think that's probably the weakest point of the whole thing, because actually the music in the show is good. And I know that a lot of it was reused from International Detective, but hardly anyone had seen International Detective. So it kind of feels like man of the world music. Some of the incidental cues, obviously, because it's Edwin Astley, we get that familiar feel. That makes the Danger Man seeming episodes even more Danger Man. I want to talk about how this series didn't get a sale in America, really, because it seems to be plagued by a few problems. Obviously, we've had the strike and we've gone from colour to black and white and we've gone from 26 episodes to 20 and we've lost Tracy Reed somewhere along the way and no one knows where she is and we can't find any sight of her. But there was big plans for this to be sold to a network in America and sadly... It didn't happen, even though Lou pulled out all the stops. And in January 63, he got two American networks. He got CBS and NBC, who both expressed an initial interest in it because of Craig Stevens, to look at the episodes, and they turned it down. That's quite a shocker, really, in effect, because this is where Lou is having a bit of a bad patch, really, in his selling of his shows to America, because if you think about it, he didn't sell the same black and white episodes in to a network. They were syndicated. And we've got a variety advert here from 1964 saying that Man of the World is available for its first run. So they struggled to even sell it into syndication. And I wonder that if that's another reason why it's been forgotten, because, OK, successful wise, here's one thing. But, you know, lots of the shows get remembered because they were successful in in America or not necessarily huge successes, but they were shown there or they were sold into France or Australia. You know, this whole thing that we talk about ITC shows going around the world. Man of the World is one of those that didn't seem to get many sales OK, let's sort of play the game here. Rodney, you can be CBS, I'll be NBC. So we've got Lou Grade, he's coming to us. We've got the guy who played Peter Gunn. He's got a Peter Gunn haircut. He's got Peter Gunn suits. It's Peter Gunn style. It's in black and white. What am I going to do? I think I'm just, just going to rerun Peter Gunn. I'm not going to buy this. It may well have been that. Yeah, I think you make a very interesting point when you say it like that, Smudge. <laughs> Summing up then, I think this series is a forgotten ITC gem. I think we've got a great leading man in Craig Stevens, who's very, very consistent in his performance as Mike Strait. We've got Tracy Reed, who I think was great and sadly disappeared and was underused, but she's a strength. We've got some wonderful location footage in places like Spain and Paris and Scotland and London. I love all that. We've got consistently good episodes. We do have a few that aren't quite as good. And we've got some high production values, great cars. I just think that if you've not seen this show, I think it's really worth giving it a go because you also get that lovely, colourful pilot and then you get some great film noir as well in the black and whites. I think that if you gave it a chance, you'd really enjoy it. I mean, I would say if you love Danger Man, if you love The Saint, there are elements of both that sort of filter through. And it's got the consistency of Gideon's Way in terms of very, very few poor episodes. 
and in Craig Stevens, it's a great actor to discover because most people in Britain will have never seen Peter Gum. And I think you've got everything here from topical political stories all the way through to some light comic ones and everything in between. I personally think that the difference in locations, the difference in style, some being quite dark, some being more action adventure, like the sort of jungle mission type one, and some being sort of almost quite light comedy. I see that as a strength rather than mm. a weakness because... Yeah, yeah. You know, Craig Stevens provides the connective tissue, but you're going to get quite an assortment in the box, aren't you? And I just say hats off to Lou Grade for once again going out to America, seeing what was working and thinking we can do something ourselves of equal value. I mean, you guys have said it all. The only way I can really follow that is to put my personal spin on it. And when we're in the very, very early days of prepping this, and you said, Rodney, that this is so far up in your ITC chart. A little voice at the back of my head was saying, what's this bloke on? And coming back to it, I can only sort of reaffirm both your judgments. This is a very, very strong, a very solid ITC series. If you miss it, you're missing something really good quality. So I would just say, don't be like me and wonder what on earth somebody was talking about. Go out there and see it for yourself. I'd just like to say a few thanks here. I'd like to thank Andrew Pixley and Tony McKay for being so generous to share some of their research on these shows with us, because obviously we've done some, but they're good friends of mine. And I've asked if they had any little bits, holes they could fill in, and they both came back. And that's part of what we do this about. It's about sharing the love for these programs. So thanks, guys, for that. I'd also like to thank you, the listeners, because this is a year since we launched this podcast and you've been amazing. You've stuck with us and we have had some sort of left field sort of choices, you know, in what we've done. Uh, people sort of raised an eyebrow when we did the Tamarind Seed and Hammer House of Horror. But, you know, all of these are strings to the ITC bow and you've stuck with us. So I'd really like to say thanks to the audience and please keep your feedback coming in. And on that note, I'm going to say goodbye. And it's been a great chance to chat again with Rodney and Smudge. I really do enjoy these chats. So I'll say goodbye and I'll leave these two people to say goodbye as well. First of all, thank you, Jazz A, for coming up with the idea of the podcast and also introducing me to Man of the World, as you did with Gideon's Way, and two shows I'm very fond of. Well, I know I wasn't here at the start of the year, but uh, the period I've done has certainly flown by and it's certainly been enjoyable. So, yes, thanks, Jazz, very much for sort of getting me into this, even if it was with a bit of arm twisting. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad I did. And we'll see you all again in what will become, I suppose, season two of ITC Entertain the World podcast. <laughs>